Uh, welcome to Ask the Expert. We're here with Dr. Andres Garcia. He's uh, coming to us from Georgia Tech. And the title of this talk is Biomaterials for Transplantation of Insulin-Producing Cells. Dr. Garcia is the Executive Director of the Parker H. Pettit uh, Institute for Bioengineering Bioscience. Uh, the Pettit Director's Chair, he also has the Pettit Director's Chair in Bioengineering and Bioscience. And the region, he's also a Regents Professor at George W. Woodruff School of um, Mechanical Engineering at Georgia Institute of Technology. Um, so his research program uh, integrates innovative engineering, material science, and cell biology concepts and technologies to create cell instructive biomaterials for regenerative medicine and generate new knowledge in mechanobiology. This cross-disciplinary effort, which we laud, has uh, resulted in new biomaterial platforms that elicit targeted cellular responses and tissue repair in various biomedical applications innovative technologies to study and exploit cell adhesive interactions and new mechanistic insights into the interplay of mechanics and cell biology. And in addition, his research has generated intellectual property and license agreements with startup and multinational companies. He's the co-founder of three startup companies, Select Cell, that's C-E-L-L-E-C-T-C-E-L-L, Core Ami Therapeutics, which is C-O-R-A-M-I, and Eye Tolerance. He's received several distinctions, including an NSF Career Award, uh, Young Investor Award for the Society of Biomaterials, Georgia Tech's Outstanding Interdisciplinary Activities Award, and the Clensel Award for Basic Science from the Society of Biomaterials. And finally, uh, let's see what else, a lot more, uh, the International Award for the European Society for Biomaterials and Georgia Tech's Class of 1934 Distinguished Professor Award. He's the elected fellow of Biomaterial Science and Engineering, by the International Union of Societies of Biomaterial Science and Engineering, a fellow at American Association for Advancement of Science, and fellow of the American Society of Mechanical Engineers. Um, he served as the president for uh, Society for Biomaterials in 2018-2019, and he's an elected member of the National Academy of Engineering, National Academy of Medicine, and National Academy of Inventors. Wow, he's very, very busy and with a very deep CV. <laughs> Welcome. Um, I'm really interested to talk to you today about, you know, your work in biomaterials for islet transplantation, and you want to kind of set the stage and give us a little bit of uh, a background on what you're, uh, what you've been up to. Great. Thank you, Monica. It's really a pleasure to be here with you and, and, and your audience. And I, I, you know, I'm excited about uh, sharing with you some recent uh, data uh, and results. And as you mentioned, my lab focuses on engineering biomaterials uh, for islet and cell transplantation, uh, including for uh, the, the treatment of type one diabetes. Yes. So uh, as many of us uh, know, uh, islet transplantation is really uh, to date the only um, effective potential core for type one diabetes. Um, and this has been shown to be safe and effective uh, for type 1 diabetes patients, uh, but the clinical trial involved patients that had hypoglycemia on awareness and severe hypoglycemic events. Uh, while this is very promising, uh, it's not a durable cure, and most yeah. of these patients uh, go back onto full insulin. So, um, you know, a lot of excitement in the field, especially recently uh, with the vertex data with the human stem cell. Uh, derived insulin-producing cells. So I think, um, you know, the cell therapy to treat type 1 diabetes is really at a, at a cost of really advancing 
um, and really, you know, improving the life of the patients. Yeah. So as summarized here, there are some, some significant limitations to have eyelid and, and stem cell uh, based therapies as a broad uh, cure for type one diabetes. Um, the problem that we have been working on, and I'll talk about uh, deals with uh, the immune rejection to this allogeneic uh, in the case of islet, right? Because they're obtained from genetically dissimilar uh, cadaveric donors that provide a mismatch. Uh, and the need and complications associated with this heavy immunosuppressive drug. So recipients of either islets or uh, human-derived insulin-producing cells uh, must remain in long uh, term chronic uh, immunosuppression. And those drugs are toxic, not only to the recipient, but also for the graft. So, yeah. and it's also very difficult to get, you know, the younger patients involved in that kind of treatment. And many of the patients who do get type one diabetes get that disease at a young age. Yes. And, you know, balancing the risks to benefit is really a very difficult thing. Um, so, you, you know, the goal of really reducing or potentially eliminating these immunosuppressive drugs is really a, an important uh, topic in the field. Absolutely. So there are many groups uh, that are working on this and, you know, there's been long running strategies, for example, using biomaterials to encapsulate uh, islets. Uh, and unfortunately, today, uh, those approaches really um, have not uh, proven success in either large animals or humans. So our approach has been uh, different in that we are focused on uh, engineering immune tolerance to the graft, right? So the idea or the concept is, can we induce the recipient to accept the graft uh, without the need of immunosuppression? The so holy grail, really. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's been, uh, and again, this is important not only for uh, you know cell therapy in diabetes, but it's also important in many other applications. So our strategy has centered on delivering a very potent uh, immunomodulatory protein, fast ligand, as a therapeutic target, right? And Fast ligand is a key modulator of peripheral tolerance in mammals. Um, and in the context of cell transplantation, we know that activated T cells express fast receptor and become sensitive to fast ligand apoptosis. And again, this is the uh, major mechanism by which uh, we uh, create uh, localized uh, peripheral tolerance. So, Earlier, proof-of-principle studies demonstrated that indeed fast ligand-induced apoptosis to block T-effector cells from, from killing islet grafts was a promising strategy. Uh, and much of this work was done using gene therapy. Uh, and while exciting, uh, you know, these approaches uh, face significant technical and translational limitations associated with off-target effects and Monica, as you indicated, uh, this is a primarily a young population. So, you know, there's concerns uh, there. Yeah. I mean, you have to be very, it has to be specific and scalable, right? That's the name Correct. of the game. Correct. So, uh, you know, and other work demonstrated that the format of the presentation of the fast ligand, so when using the protein, 
the format of his presentation was critical to function. And for fast ligand to work properly, it had to be immobilized on the surface of a presenting cell. So that was important for us from a biomaterials perspective because it suggested a mechanism for the delivery. Mm -hmm. Now, the target that we use of fast ligand is a recombinant chimeric protein of fast ligand that was developed by our collaborators, Esma Yoko and Haval Sherwan from the University of Missouri. And this protein contains, and I, the schematic here shows that it has multiple copies of the extracellular domain of fast ligand fused to the streptavidin core protein, okay? And, and in a very elegant study, they had demonstrated that if they chemically modified islets to present this protein, they could induce immune acceptance. Mm -hmm. So the challenge there is that you're chemically modifying the islets. And, and again, this, this poses challenges, as you mentioned, when you're trying to develop something that's translatable and scalable, right? Right. And, and so can you just dig into that a little bit? So you guys are modifying uh, all cells that are, you know, being transplanted as islets. So, uh, so, or just beta cells. No. So the strategy that they had previously shown was modifying the, the islet. So it would be all of the cells in yeah. the, or, or a significant number of the cells. Mm -hmm. But uh, this uh, prior knowledge really served a foundation for the strategy that we wanted to pursue. And that was, you know, let's engineer a biomaterial for the control presentation of the fast ligand without having to chemically modify the cells, right? Yeah, that better. <laughs> we, we, yeah, we agree, right? So the idea was to generate hydrogel particles, and which are called microgels. These are hydrogel spheres, and we make them by microfluidic polymerization. And you can see how this droplet generates the particles of control size that become crosslink and become hydrogels. Mm. And, you know, this movie just shows that by changing the flow rate, we can change the size of the resulting particle. The important thing is that this method really provides a well-controlled approach to engineer fully synthetic uh, hydrogel particles, right? So we have complete control over the chemical and mechanical compositions uh, of this uh, biomaterial, and we have it with very high precision. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's great. So the idea was to make a particle that was functionalized with biotin, which is a small biotin, uh, a small vitamin, and use that biotin to capture and present the streptavidin fast ligand because streptavidin binds biotin with high affinity, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the concept. And in fact, that works very well. Uh, you can see here uh, microgels labeled in red, uh, ones that have biotin and ones that do not have biotin. And only those that present biotin can capture and present streptavidin label proteins. Nice. Right? So similarly, we can engineer microgels that have a controlled density of the streptavidin fast ligand on the surface simply by varying the coding concentration. And importantly, we show that engineering this biomaterial maintain the bioactivity of that fast ligand. So we test that in lab in the culture by looking at apoptosis on a target cell. 
And you can clearly see that we have those dependent increase in apoptosis uh, only when we display fast ligand using the biotin from the biomaterial. So these studies show that we can engineer a material with controlled density of fast ligand that retains its biological activity. So then, you know, the question is, does this work in the setting of eyelid transplantation? Yeah. So what I'm gonna summarize here is, is um, really the, the key study that we did first in mice and then on a large animal model. So first the murine study. So this is a, an allogeneic transplant model, right? So we isolate eyelids uh, from one strain of mice uh, that is immune differently uh, than the recipient mice, which are diabetic, right? So in this model, the eyelids should reject uh, very quickly. And then we assess the, whether co-delivering the microgel particles presenting the fast ligand had any positive effect. And how are you delivering these? Just, you know, by injection to a local, to the local yeah. region? So these are uh, delivered on the paper, on the study, we examined two transplant sites. One is under the kidney capsule and the other one was in the epidemal fat pad, which is analogous to the omentum uh, in the larger animals. Right. Monica, one important thing here that I need to stress is the eyelids uh, were not encapsulated in the biomaterial and were not manipulated. We simply mix the eyelids with the biomaterial at the time of transplantation. So, hmm. you know, from a translational standpoint, this is very attractive because it could be an off-the-shelf uh, application. Oh, yeah. Right? And yeah. So then how long did it last? Right. So what we're looking here is uh, survival of the graph as measured by the ability to reverse diabetes in this uh, chemically induced mice as a function of time, right? Uh, so if we look at first at the control, so the black circles are eyelids co-transplanted with control microgels that did not have the protein, the fast ligand. And you can see that eyelids in that group rejected very quickly within 25 days, all of the mice rejected the graft, showing that this is a stringent model of allo transplantation. Mm -hmm. The blue triangles are eyelids co-transplanted uh, with the fast ligand microgels. And you can see that we have an increase in the lifetime of the graft and importantly, about 25% of those recipients have long-term graft acceptance for up to 200 days that could function properly. Again, this is without any chronic uh, immunosuppression. So that's a significant advance. And you now, added rapamycin here, right? Yeah. And the reason for that is our colleagues had demonstrated that if you combine the fast ligand with a brief dose of rapamycin, 15 days post-transplant, we could boost the immunomodulatory efficiency or effect of the fast ligand. And that's what's shown in the red curve. And you know the data is remarkable, right? Over 93% of those recipients have long-term graft acceptance and function without any chronic immunosuppression. And by all metrics, uh, you know, these mice uh, were uh, cured and restored to normal glycemia. So for example, if we look at graft function, 
via a glucose tolerance test. So what's done here is at sacrifice, we inject a glucose bolus, and then we see how quickly it's cleared from the blood, right? That's a, mention, a measure of graft function. You can see here curves for the fast ligand microdose with the rapamycin recipients at 200 days compared to naive healthy mice. And you mm -hmm. see that for both cases, we can easily clear the glucose challenge, right? In the normal kinetics, whereas the mice that had rejected grafts have very poor glucose disposal. Mm -hmm. And again, when we look for staining, uh, at the graft site, the, the ones that had the fast ligand microgels, we could find insulin positive structures that you know, reflect the transplanted islets in close opposition to where the microgels were co-transplanted with the fast ligand. Whereas the controls that did not have the fast ligand, there was no insulin remaining at the tegman. So, so the microgel stays you know, basically with the islet then. Correct. It doesn't diffuse and, you know, impact other organs. No, the, the, exactly. The microgels are about the size of the islet. So they're about 150 to 200 microns. Mm -hmm. So they stay locally. So, you know, this is again, very promising and exciting results. Um, we did a fair amount of immune analysis to identify the mechanism by which this was working. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, and, and you know, we found that the actual fast ligand protein only remains there for a very brief time. So for about four to seven days, by two weeks, all of the protein has, has cleared. But what we see is that in that brief induction window, the biomaterial induces a population of T regulatory cells or Tregs. And those are the cells that establish an immune acceptance circuit and maintain graft acceptance. And if you go to the publication, you see that if you deplete or you ablate those cells, later at uh, the graft rejects, right? So the biomaterial induces this very potent population of T regulatory cells, and it is those cells that maintain the graft acceptance. What, um, you know, what flavor T regs are those? Uh, what do you mean? Well, can you elaborate like what T regs are called over? So these are uh, T regulatory cells that uh, induce and maintain this immune acceptance. These are your CD25 positive, uh, uh, FOXP3 positive T regs. Right, great. This looks very promising. So, uh, you know, we then, uh, and again, we were very fortunate to be funded by the JDRF. Uh, we then were able to test uh, this approach uh, in diabetic monkeys, right? And this is a very challenging preclinical model in non-human primates. Uh, and we basically did uh, the same thing that we did in the mouse study. So we co-transplanted allogeneic islets, again, mixed together with the fast ligand microgels uh, in a diabetic non-human primate model without chronic immunosuppression. Okay, and this data was recently published. Uh, so if we look uh, at the 
you know, metabolic outcome. So this on this graph, I'm plotting the average blood glucose levels, um, which correspond to the blue line. Uh, anything above the hash line is hyperglycemic, right? So we want to be below the hash line. And uh, the orange bars refer to the external insulin dose that's given because in these recipients we did marginal graphs, right? So you don't expect that one donor to one recipient will completely uh, return normal glycemia. Uh, but the results are here. These were four uh, treated animals. Uh, we see that prior to transplantation, there was very poor blood glucose uh, control. Uh, these animals also needed a high dose of, of insulin to control their blood glucose levels. Uh, but post-transplantation, we quickly see uh, reversal to normal glycemia. Uh, we have excellent blood glucose control for over six months. Uh, also, these recipients had reduced insulin uh, dosage to about 10 times uh, the original pre-transplant dose. And in fact, one of the recipients by the end of the study was completely off uh, exogenous insulin. Um, again, this is over uh, six months without the use of any chronic immunosuppression. The RAPA regimen was modified a little bit to go up to 90 days, but certainly after removal of RAPA, we had very good blood glucose levels. Um, to demonstrate that this reversal was indeed due to the graft, uh, we explanted the graft in the recipients and that demonstrated uh, complete and quick reversal to hyperglycemia, right? So that's an important study because it demonstrates that the reversal of the diabetes is due to the graft transplantation. Yeah, that's very key. So those were the four treated uh, animals. We also had three control uh, monkeys that receive eyelids microgels without fasciagen and the same rapamycin uh, regimen. And those uh, recipients very early demonstrated uh, signs of graft rejection and very poor uh, glucose control, as you would expect, uh, you know, in this allotransplant model. So summarizing the graft survival, we see that we co-transplant islets with the fasciagen microgel. We have indefinite uh, graph survival over the duration of the study, whereas the controls reject very quickly. Right. And yeah. then, to then to share, and, and you know, these are really remarkable uh, data. So we're very excited uh, by them. And then a little bit more information just to round up the study. Again, for the fast ligand treated uh, recipients, uh, we see normal insulin and C peptide levels as shown here, right? So this is the naive levels. Uh, insulin on the left axis, C-peptide on the right axis, and we have measurements for both fasting and then stimulating. And importantly, uh, you see that uh, this is after they're made diabetic, three months and six months after transplantation, uh, we have a, uh, we normalize the insulin and the C-peptide to what we have to the naive state. And importantly, we see that there's actually glucose responsive C-peptide production, right? So when you go from the fasting uh, to the stimulated one after they eat, you actually see an increase in both C-peptide and insulin demonstrating uh, metabolic uh, responses to that. 
Uh, we also did a glucose tolerance test and we show excellent uh, disposal kinetics, uh, similar to uh, a healthy uh, recipients. Uh, again, because we had seen that T-Rex were necessary in the rodent study, uh, we saw that at the graft site, so locally, we saw an increased number of FOXP3 positive cells, which are, uh, that's a marker for T-Rex. So we see an enrichment of T-Rex in the treated uh, recipients, which is consistent with the mechanism of action that we saw in the murine study. Yeah. Uh, and then importantly, from a safety standpoint, we saw no changes in T-cell systemic frequencies or responses uh, to donor or third-party antigens, which suggests immune acceptance. And uh, you know, in initial studies, we saw normal liver and kidney metabolic function. Um, the controls, uh, as expected, uh, you know, had undetectable insulin and C-peptides, right? These this were really uh, not doing well. Uh, they had very poor glucose disposal. Uh, they had increased antibodies uh, against the donor uh, antigens and T-cell responses uh, to the antigens demonstrating that they do elicit a response to that transplant. So, you know, very excited by the results on the non-human primates. Uh, the, there are very few studies that demonstrate such promising results in this very challenging stringent large animal model. And, you know, this technology has been licensed by a startup that we co-founded uh, called iTolerance uh, that is working to bring this uh, to a clinical trial. So we have uh, completed our pre-IND with the FDA. Uh, you know, we know what, what needs to be included in the full IND and we're working towards that. Um, we are expecting to submit our full IND in the first half of 2023, and then to start the first in human study in the second half of 2023. That's very exciting. What is the, um, how does, can you just comment a little bit on how this work might uh, have the possibility to dovetail with the um, work being done at both the Viacite and Vertex? Yeah, certainly. Thank you for the question, Monica. That's that's something that's very important to us. Uh, so the foundational studies that we have done are with very uh, guidelines, as that already has you know clinical approval. But we're very keen to move this into uh, you know human stem cell derived insulin producing cells as this is really a more viable, renewable cell source. So yeah. we have a couple of programs within both the academic labs as well as the company to really focus on transplanting uh, those stem cell-derived beta cells. We expect that the technology will work just as well. You know, as I pointed out, the technology is sort of agnostic to the cell source because we don't have to encapsulate the cells we don't have to manipulate the cells in any way to present the protein. We simply co-mix them at the time of transplantation, right? And we have some data that suggests that that's fully compatible with the stem cell. So we, we don't anticipate any problems in moving this into the, the, the stem cells. And as you know, the clinical trials that have shown promising results with the stem cells those patients are still in full immunosuppression. Uh, 
Yes. So we think that, uh, you know, our approach provides really an alternative route to the use of, of immunosuppression to induce immune acceptance. Yeah, no, it's a very interesting approach for sure. And, um, you know, with the, with this implant, I mean, have you thought about delivery in the human um, setting? Like just at, you know, the Omentum again is a, is a very like popular site due to its, you know, rich vascularization. All right. Yeah. So that's, you know, the, the, the non-human primate study that were transplanted at the, at the Omentum, uh, we had such positive results uh, at that site that currently the plan uh, in the human trial is to go to the Omentum uh, because as you pointed out, because of the rich vascular supply, uh, we do think again that this technology and we're exploring other transplant sites that may have uh, different advantages at the Omentum, notably accessibility. Uh, so again, an advantage of this technology is that uh, it's applicable to other sites because simply we're just putting uh, biomaterial particles mixed in with the graft. Yeah. And so I guess ultimately you could imagine this could be an ejection into the abdomen, you know, once all, if it all works and, uh, you know, is all optimized. An ejection into the omentum, you know, into the abdomen. And then maybe it would last for what, you've got six months here. And then even if you had to do another injection tw- twice a year, I mean, that's, a, that's an incredible opportunity there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we do expect that this is going to last longer than six months. Uh, the constraints that we had on this particular study in the monkeys was that uh, due to COVID, uh, there were some institutional restrictions that didn't allow us to continue uh, taking the study. You know, the animals, when we would sacrifice them, uh, they looked great. You know, there were no signs that there were any degeneration in the graph performance. So we do expect uh, to provide uh, enhancements over longer periods of time. The question remains how long. Uh, but as you point out, uh, you know, again, this strategy should be compatible with uh, having to redose with more cells if necessary. Yeah, which is, you know, fine. I mean, as it, it would still be ultimately a, an incredible, uh, you know, incredibly opt, uh, a better situation than you know, we have currently for type one diabetes. I guess I would also just ask in terms of the, you know, in the humans, you've got memory cells um, that are, you know, hanging out uh, at certain yeah. sites, sort of unnamed sites, you know, wherever they are locally in the pancreatic um, lymph nodes, or maybe even in the appendix or wherever they're hanging out. So, you know, do you feel that, you know, this, whole, you know, the, the FOXP3 cells are going to be enough to handle um, it if those memory cells get reactivated? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a great question. Um, you know, also, and I will point out that, uh, remember, the non-human primate model that we use here uh, was a chemically induced model, right? It doesn't right. have autoimmunity, whereas in the human condition, you do expect some, uh, you know, there's uh, autoimmunity. You know, Monica, those are all questions that we're um, keen on looking at. I think they only can be addressed when we move into the clinical uh, trial and we will be uh, looking into that. 
uh, based on our work uh, before uh, with the fast eigen and the induction of immune acceptance via T-Rex, you know, we're, we're, we're excited, we're optimistic that this will uh, work also as well uh, in the clinic. But certainly we'll, you know, we will only know by, by doing the trial. All right. Um, I just wanted to invite um, some of our other attendees here to ask questions. Um, we have a couple people sitting here that actually work in the space. So if they would like to unmute themselves, I'd, you know, happy to have some questions. Uh, I see Amir is here, Dr. Amir. Yeah, uh, hi, sorry, um, can you hear me okay? Yes. yes. Yeah, um, thanks very much, uh, Professor Garcia. I really enjoyed your um, presentation. Um, I'm Thank sorry, you. I'm not sure is my camera on there, but... Um, yes, it is. Yeah, we oh, it is, is. okay. Perfect, okay, great. Um, <laughs> you don't need to, but um, thanks very much. Um, so my name is Dr. Emer Dolan. I'm um, based in Galway in Ireland. Um, so it's it's great that we I could uh, join this call this evening to listen to your presentation. So I have I have three questions, okay. um, if if you don't mind. So my first one is um, just around the the um, delivery. So you had um, or Monica had had postulated that potentially you could have some kind of an injection, you know, every year or so. Is the formulation viscous? Or is it quite easy to, to deliver through a needle? No, you can deliver through a needle because it's basically particles, right? So you're just injecting the particles in a suspension. So certainly, uh, you know, depending on the size of the particle and the dent in the concentration, you could get something that's uh, a little heavier. Uh, but just so you know, this this ones for these toys, they're basically liquid uh, quality. So not viscous at all. So well, they wouldn't be affected by a, some kind of shear force. No, we don't expect that that's going to be a problem. Cool. That's super. And then um, on in, in the explant, so you had mentioned that you explanted uh, them in the non-human primate study. Um, how difficult was it to explant them or how did you find the, the graft? They were in the omentum, so this were going to be, uh, it was a takedown. So getting the transplant area where we had put in the eyelets, we just took out the whole section of that omentum. And then we had to go through the sections to find the eyelets and the microgels. That's what was a little bit more challenging. Okay, so it wasn't, you couldn't, it wasn't possible to find, like visually pick out the graft and the omentum, you just... No, we took the, the explant out and, and, and did the section in there. We did not, um, that's, that was the design of the story was to do it that way. Super, okay. And then my last question is around, and I'm, I apologize, I missed the couple, the, the first few minutes of your talk. Um, but are the microgels eventually resorbed or are they, do they just stay put? Great, great question. So the formulation that we use uh, in this study is a non-degradable formulation. To give you a little bit more background, these are polyethylene glycol uh, microgels that are about 95% water. So only 5% is the polymer. We designed them uh, to be non-degradable. Uh, we do have formulations now that are degradable either by proteases or hydrolytic. Um, so those are always an option if we really want to get complete resorption of the biomaterial. 
Okay, that's great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, and yeah, again, I really enjoyed your talk. Thanks. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, and I, is there, you know, anyone from Syraxis here that would like to um, weigh in on this or ask a question? Oh, hi, hi, Andres. It was a good talk. Um, I did have a question, but it was about the the resorption of the uh, PAG microgels, and you just um, you just answered it. Okay. Um, however, let me let me. Uh, There's one thing I noticed on your slide. It had said that the range in diameter of the gels was between twenty and four hundred microns, and I think as you were speaking through it, you you limited that range to two hundred microns. Yeah, sorry. So yes, we that's the range that we can make the particles with this technology. Uh, but we can have very tight control. So most of these are below 5% of the size that we target. So in the non-human primate, we picked a much narrow range of about 180 to 200 microns. Um, so, okay, terrific. So the 20 to the 400 is what we can make by microfluidic polymerization. But that's not the ones we transplanted. What we transplanted was a was a very narrow range. Terrific. Well, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you again. I mean, this is great. I really enjoyed um, you know hearing from scientists work, who work in uh, academia and industry in the same space, and hopefully, you know, um, maybe some offline uh, collaborations will develop uh, as a result of this. But thanks again, uh, Andres. This was a phenomenal talk. Really pushing the envelope in this um, in this realm. And, and we can't wait to see really what you do next. So I hope you have a great rest of the day and we'll, we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much. Thank you, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.